If you brought your Bibles this morning, would you open with me to Mark chapter 9? Uh, as you're turning to Mark chapter 9, I'm going to read 14 through 29. Um, I, I thank Will so much for um, continuing to pray for the ministry of Reform University Fellowship. I, I know that you think that I, I sound redundant. That when I get a chance, and by God's grace, it's been maybe once every year or so that I've gotten a chance to come and be with you <clears throat> and fill in for Jimmy. But every time I come here, I, I, I go out of my way to say thank you to you uh, for your support for the ministry of Reformed University Fellowship uh, over the years. Um, in, indeed, uh, I don't think that I am a stranger to this congregation but I've learned over the years that that actually may be part of the problem. <laughs> uh, you know me a little too well uh, uh, in this congregation. You've been very gracious to me uh, to be p- patient with me as we've come back uh, and tried to see the ministry of RUF grow. And by God's grace, it has. Uh, when we started RUF, and I remember first coming to this congregation in the summer of 1994 for the University of Memphis. Memphis was the 26th. RUF in the entire country. Uh, I, I'm getting on a plane tomorrow morning to go to Dallas, Texas for our national staff training where we will gather a little over 130 campus ministers from campuses all over the country. Uh, in the last 16 years, we've just seen an extraordinary growth in this ministry. Uh, and you know, as well as I know, that new growth creates new challenges. Uh, not just financially, which you have been extraordinarily generous to help us out with, uh, but also uh, great questions of wisdom, uh, of, of internal consistency, of trying to figure out the way to do this ministry as well as we possibly can. Uh, so all that's to say, please don't stop praying for us. Uh, we have uh, long loved being able to be your arm going to the college campus. And so please help us in doing that for the future uh, by continuing to pray for us. Mark chapter 9, let's give our attention this morning to the reading of God's Word, beginning in 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Someone from the crowd answered them, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him... Immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, If you can. All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. 
And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is God's word for us this morning. I have a game that I love to play with my students. And the name of the game is called You Be the Campus Minister. There are no greater joys that I have at being a minister than hearing the kind of questions that college students can conjure up. I tend to think that it's a time in which the really raw, unfiltered, uh, uncareful questions tend to come out of a college student's mouth. And in one particular occasion, I was sitting down with a young man who asked me a question that I have been, I don't know if trouble with is the right word, but I've been mulling over ever since he asked it. And it happened when I was at the University of Memphis now 13, 14 years ago. It was a young man who came from what I would suspect would be a very typical background to a congregation like that. A young man raised in a, in a Christian home was educated in a, in a Christian environment, had as much exposure to uh, the things of God and to the truths of the gospel as a young man could hope to have. And yet, upon his arrival at college, he began to find a lot of what, I guess, institutionally had created some uh, barriers around him. He began to lose a lot of that initial resolve that he had to live for Christ. And the story is as obvious as it is to any of you who've even known someone who's gone off to college. He looked around sometime around his sophomore year in college and thought, this is not what I wanted to be. And so he called me and asked me if we could get together and visit, and we did right there in the cafeteria at the University of Memphis. But as we were visiting, he began to pour over where he was and struggling with the things that he was doing and the reasons why he was tempted in ways in which he really never remembered himself being when he was growing up. And at one point, I thought to myself, I'm fresh out of seminary, I thought, well, I better give this young man some answers. And so I sort of leafed through the files of my seminary training and brought out what I thought was an erudite, learned you know, book learning answer for this guy. I went through some topic of something, tried to spell out some ideas left and right, sort of explaining to him left and right the ideas that I had learned and sort of picked up in the meantime. All the while, he very patiently sat there and nodded and smiled at me and grinned. The end of which of my beautiful presentation, and I often wonder what it was that I expected at the end of that, as if he was going to say, oh, thanks, it's all better now. Instead, what he looked at me is he just smiled and he said, Les, I know every bit of that and have known every single bit of that since the earliest of times of my memory. He goes, that's not my problem. I know these things. He goes, what I'm having trouble with is sort of getting that stuff from up here to down here, which is kind of interesting if you think about it. This was the... This was the sort of a physical place in which he had located it. It's all here in my mind, but it's just not here in my heart. And his question was, he goes, what I really think I'm struggling with is what it means to believe. In other words, I know these things. I've got the information, but I just don't know how to get it in. 
He goes, Les, what I'm really struggling with is, how is it that I believe? Okay, so play the game with me. (laughs) You're the campus minister. How will you answer that question? What does it mean to believe? And you're not allowed to answer the question in the way in which we typically do, which is to answer the question with the word that you're trying to define. I feel like growing up when you ask the question, what does it mean to believe? Well, it means to trust. Okay, well, what do you mean by trusting? Well, it means to sort of put all of your confidence in. Okay, well, what does that mean? (laughs) What would you say to someone who asked you the question about what it means to believe? What I want to do this morning is to take a lens on this little passage of scripture that we just read. And to filter that question through the prism of three questions about the nature of believing. Because in my opinion, and what we're going to get to in just a moment, this is kind of a big topic. And for the last years that I sort of tried to set this in front of college students, it amazes me how difficult it is for students to even produce even the vaguest answers of what they mean when they say that they believe. I want to ask three questions of this test, this uh, text this morning. The first one is about the centrality of believing. The second one is about the nature of believing. And then finally, about the act of believing. Did you catch that? Those are the three points. Centrality, the nature, and then the act of believing. First of all, I want you to notice that believing is at the center of Christianity. Look at what Jesus says there to the Father in these verses. He looks at the Father and makes this statement, which for many of us, in verse 23, we've passed right by. He looks at him and he says, All things are possible for the one who believes. Now, I want to to suggest that you've probably gotten way too comfortable with that sentence. (laughs) Uh, We've seen it. We can probably go to the bookstore here down the hall and find a... I don't know, a little precious moment figurine with all things are possible for those who believe on the outside of it. (laughs) We throw these phrases around, but that I would submit to you is an over-the-top statement. Jesus looks and says, all things are possible for someone who believes. In other words, what you have Jesus saying here is something that's echoed throughout the the New Testament. You can hardly throw a rock in the New Testament without finding Some reference to someone saying that the business of being a Christian is the business of believing. And we have to establish that right out of the gate. The main business of what it means for you to be a Christian is somehow tied to this issue of believing. And that's not all that interesting until you realize how different it is from the rest of world religions. The more that our culture secularizes, the more that our world, the West, as it's known, secularizes, this issue of other belief systems is going to become more and more important. But I would simply pitch to you that for most religions, the emphasis in in the terms of that religion are on what the theologians would call orthopraxy. It's a great little word to sort of identify yourself with. The word, first of all, is ortho, right, Straight is what the word literally means. We go to an orthodontist so that we can straighten our teeth. Someone who emphasizes orthopraxy is one who emphasizes right living. 
In other words, in every other world religion, when you approach that system of doctrine, you look up and you say, what does it mean for me to be a Buddhist? What does it mean for me to be a Muslim? What does it mean for me to be a Jew? I would submit to you that the primary way in which you engage with that religion is by saying, well, here is what you do. These are the practices. These are the best habits of those people who are part of this religion. Here it is. Follow these. But Christianity is different. Christianity, though, it discusses the issue of orthopraxy, begins with orthodoxy. That is, we emphasize at the very beginning that what we emphasize straightness on is orthodoxy. The word literally coming from worship, glory giving. In other words, the Christian has said that we will also always focus first on the issue of worship. Now look, already I've given you the first clue of where I'm going to describe this issue of Christian believing. But I simply want you to understand that the main business of Christianity is getting at the things that you worship. Christianity is going to find its place at the center. It is not a religion of superficiality. It's not a religion that you practice. I'm a practicing Christian, we hear people saying. But that's not Jesus' primary interest. Jesus is saying, I am going to root everything that you do about me in what you are. And what you are is what you worship. Look, Christianity is not a religion of superficiality, but it is one that has the deepest parts of your own motivation in its, in its sights. There is no way to have a casual relationship with this religion by its, on its own terms. So notice, first of all, the centrality of believing. Secondly, though, I'm hoping that you're asking the question. Okay, so Les, so then now you've got me asking the question. I came to church this morning thinking I knew what believing was, and now I don't. Thank you. Glad we made the trip. What do we mean by the idea of believing? Well, in order to answer that question, I think we first need to look at the many ways in which people get believing wrong. Now bear with me for a moment. This is coming from having been gleaned from 17 years of campus ministry. And the kinds of answers that we get from students about what they think believing is, this is what I get. Number one, I often get the answer that believing is a past action of the will where they were encouraged to make some kind of a decision. That is, believing was this moment in time where all of a sudden I was challenged to exercise my will, my volitional capacities, my my ability to choose. And in a prayer or perhaps in some sort of emotional moment, I believed in Jesus and that was followed by some kind of action. I I asked him into my heart. Uh, I accepted him as my personal Lord and Savior. I've always sort of thought it was funny that it seems like that's one word in evangelicalism, isn't it? Personal Lord and Savior. There's no spaces between those words. He's my personal Lord and Savior. In other words, I believed when I performed this action, when I prayed this prayer. And when I ask students about what it meant for them to believe, what it means for them to believe, they're constantly going back to this action. 
Now, what could be wrong with that? For many of you, I know that you can tell extraordinary stories about God's dramatic intervention in your life where these decisions and prayers were prayed. And yet, though, I find that these students who are struggling with this wrestle. They wrestle because they struggle with their faith being more in the time in which they prayed the prayer than it was in the one whom they were supposed to be praying to. The funny thing about experience is it can always be be doubted. You ever notice this? I I think I was sincere when I prayed that prayer. I, I mean, I thought it was heartfelt. I mean, maybe I was just being emotionally manipulated by the speaker. I mean, Jimmy Young is awfully demonstrative up there. He's got veins coming out of his head, for heaven's sakes. Was I really, was I really engaged in that issue? Did I really choose? Did I really do that? The first way of thinking of believing that I would suggest to you is wrong-headed. is thinking that believing is a past event that I did in the pack that basically was sort of wrapped up in an exercise of the will. That's the first way. The second wrong way comes like this. For some people, they say, no, 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 less. Believing is really this sort of positive mental state into which you work yourself where you are finally and lastly purged of all doubt. No more doubting. No more questioning. I I love this because I think this is embodied uh, 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 in in our culture's view of believing. Uh, And and no better place than the little Natalie Wood. Thank goodness the black and white version of Miracle on 34th Street will be back for this holiday season. And don't you love the very end of the movie where Natalie Wood, she's come to believe in Santa Claus. She believes, she's crossed over the Rubicon, has she not? And yet all of a sudden she begins to doubt because suddenly the thing that she wanted and that she asked for didn't come true. She didn't get it. And I love the scene where they're driving through the suburban neighborhood. You remember where that's going? They're driving through the suburban neighborhood to avoid the city traffic. And there sits little Natalie Wood in the back, her faith being challenged. Do you remember what she's doing? She's sitting there sort of with her fist in her cheek. Saying, I believe, I believe, it's silly, but I believe. In other words, trying to keep, just keep talking, so that maybe as I keep talking, it'll purge out any ideas that my faith is being challenged. In other words, for many people, they think that believing is the ability to sort of shake off any objection. Here's what that's created in the life of these college students. They come to college for the first time and are in many ways challenged in ways in which they never were challenged before with, with uh, systems of thinking, with people who have brought up sort of uh, objections to Christianity. And because they've never been allowed the freedom to ask the question, they suddenly abandon their faith at the very first shade of doubt. My friends, I, I, I simply ask this question. What's the difference between doubting And simply growing in one's faith. If I'm not questioning and learning to ask you, how do I know that what I say I believe is what I really believe? My friends, believing cannot be the absence of doubt. It may very well be the very beginning. The presence of doubt may very well be the beginning of believing. It's a wrong way, I think, to look at believing. Thirdly. Others will look and say that believing is a simple acknowledgement of the truth. 
They'll say, well, sure, I believe in Jesus. And by that, they simply mean that uh, they're willing to agree that, what, 2,000 years ago, uh, there was a guy named Jesus who, uh, who did some stuff, right? Sure, I believe that. Of course, this is where the New Testament really challenges those people. James comes along and says, well, congratulations. You, if all you have is some sort of intellectual assent to the idea of something being true, you, you've reached the level of a demon. Congratulations. Neither is that sort of true believing. And I would submit to you, it doesn't come close to being able to carry the weight of Jesus' statement. All things are possible for one who believes. The fourth one I mentioned simply for the more intellectual of you who are really wrestling with this idea. Because for many people, they describe believing as if it's the, the intellectual leap into the dark. That is, you know, of course Christianity is absurd. You know, the crazier the better, because why else would we have to have faith? Yes, Christianity makes no sense. Yes, there are contradictions in the Bible. Who knows whether Jesus was a real historical figure or whether there really were angels appearing to the shepherds at night. Ah, that's why we have, why we have faith. <laughs> Is that the Christianity that you embrace? The Christianity of absurdity? Hebrews 11.3 says, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. You know, the writer of Hebrews looks and says, the word understanding means that we reason from the evidence. In other words, the writer of Hebrews says that our believing is wrapped up in our thinking. They are intimately connected. This whole head knowledge, heart knowledge thing, I'm beginning to think is wrong-headed as well. Look. There are a lot of wrong ways, I think, to understand believing. And so you're, it's fair to ask the question, so then what does it mean? Let me start by simply throwing this thought out to you and defining it. I think that the issue of believing, the act of believing, is present in all. In other words, believing is not just for religious people. Every human being, by no other virtue than being human, I would submit to you this morning... Believes. They are believing. And I want to simply use Jesus' interaction with the crowd and his disciples as an illustration. Look back at verse 19. Jesus looks and calls these people a faithless generation, an unbelieving generation. What is he saying? He's saying what you have to understand is this, is that when you are looking at the world, you are seeing it through a lens that can't account for my presence. And guess what? You're not going to have me much longer. I think that's the key. Jesus just gave us the definition of what it means to believe because he's saying that faith is nothing more than building one's life around something, a thing, a pursuit, a career, an idea, a relationship, to which we look and say, you will be the thing that defines my life for me. You will be that that if I look at, and if I could only finally know that I got a hold of, everything in life would be okay. Or, stated negatively, if this ever got taken away from me, I'm not sure that I could go on living. And the funny thing is, is that everyone does this. Everyone has some kind of excitement, some kind of experience that we are all doing to which we have locked on and said, this is what I must have in order to make life what it is. Because regardless of what religion you profess, 
That thing is your God in the Bible's calculus. Now we're starting to see it opened up. Do you see now why we use the word orthodoxy, right worship? Unfortunately, a lot of times we think that worship is only what happens in this place, even though it happens most specifically in this place. Worship is something that's going on a lot. I'll give you the perfect example. My children spent the week worshiping. We sat in, what was it called? Mickey Cafe. Cafe Mickey, whatever it was. We had breakfast with Mickey Mouse. And around the corner came the man himself. Ears and all, right? Motioning up. And my children froze at the table. Froze. Looking just frantic as they could be. He's here. He's right over there. What do I do? I don't know. Get up. We get his autograph. Okay. What should I do? In other words, there was a moment at which their hearts responded to an idea. And what came out of their mouths, especially of the hugging and the sort of looking and being like, oh, we watch you all the time, was what we call praise. What is praise and worship? Worship is what you do when your heart locks onto something and says, this is what delights me the most. Praise is what comes out of your mouth when you're holding on to that thing. See how you're doing it all the time? I have students who are evangelists for television shows. Les, have you seen 30 Rock? This is the funniest show I've ever seen. And the funny thing is, is they'll actually use, they'll bend the conversation to get around to that topic. You don't have to teach anyone the, 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 the techniques of evangelism. They're already doing it. You, some of you men were evangelists. I know it got cold this week, but you were evangelists for the last round of golf that you had. You're talking to someone and they're like, oh, did you have a good week last week? I had a great week last week. Let me tell you what happened on the golf course. It thrilled our hearts. It lit me up inside. And Jesus is simply coming along and saying that the only way in which to deal with the world and the problems that it has is if I am the central feature of your life's true joys. It doesn't deny your golf game. It doesn't even deny us, I don't think, Disney. What it does, though, is says that I am to be the center. Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and then all of these other things will be added to you. Jesus is saying believing is something like a windshield. It works best when you're looking through it, not at it. Focus on the imperfections of your windshield and you're going to crash your car. That's what he's saying to this man. The man comes up to him and says, Lord, I believe. Would you help my unbelief? This is a man who's tempted to sort of deal with the blemishes on his windshield. He's saying, that's not the reason for it. Faith is meant to be looked through. It's the question of faith's object. Not the essence of it. Believing is focusing on the object of belief. That leads me to the last question. So then what does believing feel like? Okay, okay, Les, that's a new idea. What does that mean? How do I, how do I grasp it? How do I know when it's happening? Great question. It's the last one that I'll finish with. Look, by saying that we don't focus on believing, it doesn't mean that we can't describe what it looks like. First of all, I think we can say two things. The first thing is this. You know that you're believing when you get humble. Look, the whole story takes place in the context of the disciples' buffoonery. The disciples are... The morons of the New Testament. You've not read the the New Testament if you don't realize that. They are always missing the point. There's a little bit of an attitude of a stomping of the foot. 
Why couldn't we cast it out? I mean, we tried in verse 28. And Jesus looks and says, this one only comes out by prayer. You know what he's saying? He's saying there are certain things that are only possible if God does them. And that's the reason why Jesus commends the man's confession. You see? This is why Jesus looks and when the man says, help my unbelief, he's saying, I think I get it, but I'm not sure. I I think I understand, but I I think though there's something about you if you can help him. That's why I love this translation, the ESV, where Jesus looks and goes, if I can help him. (laughs) Do you have any idea who who you're talking to? Have you looked and seen what I'm about? So all of a sudden, believing we see is an act of looking away from oneself. Believing is not about me. It's a statement about my inability, not my ability. It's not something that I conjure up belief in so that I can feel believing enough to actually be a Christian. Believing, true believing, is a despairing of oneself. To look away, to set myself aside and say, I don't know. If you ask me inside my head, yeah, there's belief and yeah, there's unbelief. I don't even know what's going on, but I think you can help me. In other words, it's about him, not about you. Is there a humility, first of all? But secondly, I think you'll know you're believing when you begin to talk less about your belief and more about what you believe in. (laughs) My favorite illustration is the two men running across the ice. The first man is absolutely confident that the thin ice that he's running on is going to hold him up. The second man is completely insecure and doubtful that the thick ice that he's running on will hold him up. But the two of them get across safely to the other side. Now let me ask you a question. Which person's faith saved them? You would say it was neither people's faith. It was, it was the ice. <laughs> it was the quality of the ice that was able to save that person. My friends, the question that I want to leave you with this morning is not for us to sort of brag in our believing or to rest in the quality or the quantity even of our believing. But to walk away saying, I don't know, but I think it's something about that guy. I think it's something about Jesus in here. Talk in RUF a lot about our testimonies. <laughs> it's very interesting how testimonies go. Someone walked up to you this morning and said, what is your testimony? I oftentimes get exasperated with testimonies because they never sound like my testimony. Oftentimes people stand up to sort of give their testimony and they they say things like, well, you know, everything was terrible, it was going awful, I made all these terrible decisions, but then all of a sudden I made the right decision, made a decision for Christ, and after that everything's been so wonderful. Look at all the blessings God granted me for all the wonderful things that he's done, because I believe in him. And the truth is, the, the testimony that I'd love to hear is for someone to stand up and say, you know... I have some good days. I have a lot of bad days. But I hear that Jesus took care of both. And so I'm just trying to find him. I have students all the time who are like, whoa, so what does that mean for my believing? Uh, Should I I pray a prayer right now? Of course, my answer is, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, pray a lot of prayers, as a matter of fact. Pray to Jesus often. Want to get to know him? Talk to him. Oh, okay. Should, should I start reading my Bible? Yeah. Yeah, do that a lot too. Should, should I go back to church and get involved in Bible study? Yeah. Great things. Because now those things end up becoming what? 
means to an end. One of the reasons why they give us so little life is because we try to make them ends in themselves. Because my Bible reading, my praying, my going to church have not been about him. They've been about me. This is an invitation for you this morning to see if maybe somewhere through a text like this, we could see Jesus inviting us to him and not to ourselves. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, if what this passage says is true, that will not happen on our doing. Lord Jesus, it is a rich irony that we, that we bathe in when we suddenly think that even our very prayer that we're praying now is so tainted with bad motives and, 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 and wrong thinking and, 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 and faithless doubting and Christless focus that, that, that we could be condemned for the best prayer that we ever prayed. And so maybe, just maybe, we will launch this Christmas season with new eyes. New eyes that are not so navel-gazing. New eyes that go into look into the mystery of the wonder that is your own person and work. And so, Lord Jesus, with this man, we will look at you and say, we believe. Help our unbelief. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.